Kevin Mitchell and David Shields have written the definitive book about the food of South Carolina, part history, part cookbook, and part love letter to the food of the state. If you have an interest in South Carolina, this book is a must. We talked to them today. It's on tip of the tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Kevin Mitchell and David Shields. They are the authors of a very wonderful book called Taste the State, South Carolina's Signature Foods, Recipes, and Their Stories. Kevin is a culinary instructor at the Culinary Institute of Charleston in South Carolina, and he's also a South Carolina chef ambassador. David Shields is a professor of English at the University of South Carolina, and he's also the chair of the Carolina Gold Rice Foundation. Welcome to both of you. This is a terrific book. Oh, we're glad that you love it. <laughs> yes, very, very excited, very excited. So how did you decide to write this book? The University of South Carolina Press approached uh, me a couple of years ago asking to do like the top 10 dishes of South Carolina. And it sounded too much like a, a YouTube video. So I said, no, mm-hmm. but they wanted to do a local food book. So they came back and asked what they would have to do in order to get me to sign on to the project. And I said, we have to do a deep dive. Can't be just 10. It's got to be a lot of the characteristic food. And I would have to have a co-author someone who was a culinary professional and someone who knew the African-American culinary tradition down cold. And since I'd been working with Kevin for years on all sorts of projects, I proposed his name immediately. So how long, Kevin, tell me, how long did it take for the two of you to put this book together? Well, I would say well over a year, I believe, we had some initial conversations late 2018. And then when we officially signed on, we went right into it. And then of course, you know, what happened in 2019, that pesky pandemic reared its ugly head. And we spent that entire time writing, going back and forth, looking at the specific ingredients and or dishes. And were able to finally turn in a manuscript last April and was done pretty interestingly over the wonders of technology where we actually kind of wrote this book over via email. And then 
turned everything into a Dropbox and turned the Dropbox into the press as our official manuscript. Well, it sounds like a wonderful COVID project, if you want to call it that. <laughs> <laughs> it really feels very distilled and pure, like without lots of extra material in it that is sort of the stuff that often makes things muddy, you know, and so that seems very pure to me. Did How did you decide that this was going to be dishes? I mean, was that just really because that was the press's mandate? Or um, how did you structure this in terms of your research? How did you decide which uh, dishes to include? How, how did you do that? It seems to me that would be really hard. <laughs> well, well we, we first of all, we didn't restrict it just to dishes. I mean, there are ingredients like Carolina gold rice and, a few, and the palmetto asparagus, which leads us off. What we originally did was that we compiled a huge list <laughs> of possible entries. Uh-huh. And then we asked ourselves, which of these are generically Southern and not particularly South Carolinian? And those were the first to go. And give us um, an example of what that would be fried chicken. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Pecan pie, which is a, a creation of, of Texas. And, you know, Kevin can tell about some of the controversial eliminations that we made. <laughs> yes. One, pimento cheese was heavily contested. We, at one point, David just made a Facebook post and said, hey, you know, Kevin and I are writing this book about these ingredients and or dishes. And then he actually listed all the, the ingredients and dishes that we were proposing to write about. And then we were just asking the public for their contributions, what they think or thought should <clears throat> we should be writing about. And heavily, heavily contested, what, I think pimento cheese was at the top of that list. As David said, fried chicken was on that list as well. And we had to explain to people specifically about pimento cheese that pimento cheese is not, it's it's Southern in nature, but it's not South Carolinian, it's Georgian because the, the that's the home to the, the perfection pimento pepper that they use to actually make pimento cheese. Now, we did learn that South Carolina was very famous for inventing, creating the pimento cheese burger, <laughs> but that was something that we were not necessarily going to write about. But, you know, everyone would tag on to, to that post and say, why not pimento cheese? Why not fried chicken? And <clears throat> so we, and as you can see, we stuck to our guns and neither one of those is in the book. So I'm very curious about the idea of home cooking and what people cook at home versus what you might find at a restaurant. How did you look at those issues when you were writing the book? Was it important to you that you be able to visit South Carolina and therefore might have to go to a restaurant in order to eat these foods and that they have to be on menus? Or was this more just about, this is about what we do at home. This is um, South Carolina at home. Well, I, I think that 
our approach was there are certain dishes that you will not get in restaurants that are included. And, you know, conch fritters um, were available at one restaurant, the Colony House in the 1980s and 90s, but they're no longer available within the state. And it's only on the Gullah Geechee coast that you can get a conch fritter. You have to know someone who's a, a local cook doing it. So what we did was we did a mix. Uh, a lot of the regional newspapers published the home cook recipes mm-hmm. of various, usually housewives in the, in the region. And the <clears throat> authors of the recipes were usually cited. So we have the locale and we even have a name for some of these things. Some of the Perlou recipes, these uh, rice-based dishes, which are flavored with another ingredient. Our, our local dishes that were characteristic of home cooking in a particular region. But uh, when we come across a really significant, you know, historical recipe, like the Pavilion Hotel's cornbread recipe, which is interesting because it included sugar uh-huh. in the 19th century, we stuck that in there just to show that some of the um, hard and fast opinions that people hold on, on almost a quasi-religious basis about the proper way to do things, it ain't necessarily so. You know? <laughs> I think that that's certainly true um, everywhere, that people think that the way their mother did it or their aunt or somebody like that did whatever food it is that they love is the way. This is the quintessential recipe. And uh, it's kind of difficult to find what actually is the quintessential recipe. Did you go back to old cookbooks, recipes that were in newspapers published in the 19th century? How did you do it? Well, we definitely include recipes from from old newspapers. For me, some of the major research for some of those recipes come from those newspapers that we researched on genealogybank.com. So creating a search engine for a specific dish, um, also creating a timeline saying that we wanted newspapers from say 1800 to 1830. And of course they must all be South Carolina newspapers and then submit and then that search engine, of course, would generate every newspaper in that 30-year span that had the word or recipe, something, say, about okra, for instance. Mm-hmm. And really interesting, this was something that D- David taught me in the, the beginning of the research. When we first started writing, he was able to drive down to Charleston. And we sat in my office here and he logged into his account and kind of showed me how he does this through genealogybank.com. And so I adopted that. So what I would do is say in the case of okra, we know and we were sure to find out very fast that 
most of these entries or ingredients in our dishes had thousands of articles over a 30 year span. So they pop up, we would just skim through as many as we could. We find something that was pretty interesting, had an interesting recipe, maybe an interesting story. And then I personally would just kind of pop all those into a file and label the file okra. <clears throat> and then I would leave it alone for a couple of days. I would come back to my laptop and then I would begin to rifle through them again. And then I would write, write my specific entry. When I thought the entry was done, I would send it to David via email. He would offer his suggestions, things that he felt <clears throat> if I needed to add more to the story, um, things that maybe I needed to take away. I would then go back in based on his suggestions and comments, update, edit, send it back to him. Then we would finally agree whether or not the entry was complete. And when the entry was complete, that's when it actually went into the Dropbox. So we wanted to definitely include some of those, those recipes from the 1800s. And then, then there was a question of what about more contemporary recipes? And then, of course, the famous phrase is, well, Kevin, you're a chef. <laughs> you can create these recipes specific to something that's a little bit more contemporary. So I think by doing that, we show this evolution of how, for one, how recipes were written back then mm -hmm. to how recipes are written in today's times. And also, in essence, kind of the evolution of how the, the recipes change based on the ingredients and things that are available at that particular time. I'd like to say one thing, and he asked us if we took a look at manuscripts. Yes, we did. And we looked at every cookbook that was ever published in South Carolina or in other places about South Carolina. So we have the total coverage of cookbooks. But one of the things that I found very interesting was that there are quite a number of manuscript receipt collections floating around in various historical societies. And the preponderance of recipes in them were for baked goods. Mm -hmm. There are also medical recipes, but apparently the suggestion is that the preparation of things like vegetables or main courses were for the most part already understood and were part of a kind of passed down in-house knowledge that a cook had, but baking, which is a much more precise art mm -hmm. and which was undergoing a kind of quick chemical evolution over the course of the 19th century with the soda, uh, yeah. baking soda revolution and the, the creation of, of manufactured yeasts and things like that. It required uh, written instructions to make sure that you got it right. And I, I guess one of the other things you think about in, in connection with this is that, um, you know, in a local culture, the fanciness of that cake you bring to the church supper 
uh, and sit on the side table there sort of determines the local pecking order of who the great cooks are and your local reputation. So it was greatly consequential to be able to be on top of your baking game. Oh, yes, yes, I'm, I'm sure that's true. So I was particularly interested in two different things that you talked about. One was guinea squash and the story of that and how it was lost and had to be reclaimed from Brazil. And tell us that story. I, I think that's really quite interesting because of course, everybody who thinks about eggplant today is either thinking of a white eggplant or some version of a purple eggplant. Right. And this eggplant is far from purple. And it's so lovely to have an actual photograph of it. So tell us about that. Kevin, you want to say that? No, I'll let you, I'll let you do that one. Okay. Yeah. You know, we tend to think of uh, the purple eggplant, like the Florida high bush or the black beauty, which are the standard eggplants. And those came from West Africa, but there was a round red eggplant that looks sort of like a tomato, the Solanum ethiopicum, that was also grown here and it was largely maintained by the African-American community. It didn't pass over much into sort of the restaurant cooking or uh, white household cooking in towns. <clears throat> and uh, the last known strain of it got destroyed in an arson fire in a seed house in Louisiana <laughs> uh, about 11 years ago, the, the seed was collected from an African-American farming family in Natchez, and it had been passed in, down since presumably from the colonial era. Now, the same plant survives in Brazil, and there it's called the gilo, G-I-L-O, and it's a favorite bar food and street food. As a street food, what they do is slice uh, the eggplant into discs, batter it, and fry it. It's a touch bitter. The batter is real salty, and uh, people love it. And as a bar food, it's cooked up with uh, um, onions. And it's a favorite thing to eat while you're looking at football matches, that is soccer matches. And it's stewed and, down? Is it stewed down or is yeah. it all fried? Stewed down with onions. Okay. Yeah, and uh, you get little bowls of it and and feed on it. Um, the seed that people have in the South now is, comes from Brazil and there are a number of people trying to bring it back. That photograph that is included in the book uses that kind of seed. And it was a neighbor of mine who grew it. So I headed down to Mr. Melton's house and uh, took a snap uh, on his back porch. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It looks very much like a tomato, especially in the photograph. It may look less like a tomato on the on the bush, but uh, in the photograph, it really does look like a tomato. Um, and I'm actually a big fan of, of eggplants. So now I'm going to go on some kind of a quest to find <laughs> it. <laughs> uh, the other thing that I was particularly interested in is the use of the palmetto as food. You want to talk about that a little bit? Um, yeah, the 
crown of the palmetto was made into a pickle. And at the period, at the end of the 19th century and early 20th century, when they were clearing off lots of uh, land for development, there were a lot of palmettos, cabbage palmettos being sacrificed. And they would take the crown and pickle it and can it. And the USDA canning classes were organized at that time. And it was a way of getting women to have some income. So there are a couple things that were stressed and one of them was these palmetto pickles and housewives all across the state would make them and gro grocery stores would stock them and uh, the money would go through, the, through their cooperative back to the housewives. And it was a way of actually, you know, home manufacturers for the market that put money in the hands of women. And that's, you know, sort of the real interesting wrinkle of this story. The actual pickle is sort of like a pickled hearts of palm. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, still made in parts of Florida. Someone uh, wrote me saying, as uh, showing me a, a JPEG of a of a jar of the stuff using, you know, cabbage palmetto down there. So it's something that could be made anywhere the, the, that those palm trees grow. And so was it something that was eaten by the Native Americans who were here before the Europeans came? I don't think so. There's certain a lot of things which settler culture appropriated from Native Americans, but the eating of, of palmetto crowns was not one of them. It is something that's done in the West Indies and in Central America, but not so much in the Southeast. And when you harvest the crown, does it kill the plant? Yeah, uh, and that's one of the reasons why uh, it's not so much in evidence now because uh, palmettos grow so slowly. <laughs> yes, uh, there is a desire to maintain the palmetto forests of the low country. And there's a, you know, um, general inhibitions through local zoning of clear cutting palmetto stands. <clears throat> but if you have your own property. Sure. Yeah, you can do it. And, uh, you know, the recipe's there, so. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, but then you've you've killed your palmetto, so you really have to kind of balance that out. Right. Oh my gosh! And how many years old will a plant be usually before it's mature enough to have a crown that can be harvested? I think uh, you're good in twelve years. Okay, so every twelve years <laughs> you can harvest a, a crown. Mm. Yeah, it's not, uh, it's not something that I think people are going to be bringing back to market very soon. <laughs> I But I do think it's wonderful that at least if the palmetto forests were being cleared, they did try to salvage something from it because they were going to be cleared anyway. Uh, but I, I certainly understand the impulse to maintain those forests and, and not just wipe them out. Right. So. What do you think? Um, what do you think that we should take away 
from your book? What is it that you wanted everyone to know about the food of South Carolina? Not just here's a list, but what, um, what is it that, and what is it that you took away from it or that you learned that you didn't know? Uh, I'll start. <clears throat> well, whenever people ask me that question, I look at it in three ways. When, when people read this book, first thing we wanted to talk about, list, have this book be about those dishes, those ingredients we know 100% are synonymous with South Carolina, where there's no question. When people say South Carolina, oh, this dish, this ingredient comes to mind. Second, <clears throat> the ingredients and in our dishes that have become extinct. Like, so we talk about the palmetto pickle. We, you know, we, we also talk about the groundnut cake, which is something that's very important to the history of African-Americans here in, in Charleston, how, how, it's, how it has become extinct and hopefully encourage people to bring some of those things back into existence. Third for me was the things that will surprise some people, right? We, and even myself <laughs> being surprised when we first sat down with the initial list and you see that we list everything in alphabetical order. So that very first entry Asparagus was a surprise for me. And I had this conversation with David. I said, David, why are we writing about asparagus? You know, as a chef who is, you know, French tra classically trained, we think about asparagus served with hollandaise sauce, the great French bastion of food. Why are we writing about asparagus? <clears throat> but of course, I soon learned that South Carolina was one of the king growing states of the palmetto asparagus, so popular that, you know, it even made its way into the north at some time. So those three things, you know, specifically, you know, I mentioned asparagus. We also write about oranges. Right? For me, I, I was kind of like, well, I think of like Florida, Sunshine State, Sunkiss Orange Soda, which is something that I grew up on, you know, being with my grandmother so we wanted those three things to kind of come out of this book and we also just for me as a chef I want to or wanted people to get inspired to get in the kitchen and and cook some of these recipes whether it's the the recipes from the 1800s or some of the more contemporary ones that I write for the book and David, what do you want people to take away and what, what did you discover? Well, you know, I remember Brule Savaran saying that the difference between dining and feeding is that diners are conscious of the meaning of the food that they ingest, that there's a story, an expectation, a resonance, a preference that is activated when fork and knife are applied to the dish in front of you. And I think it's a, a mode of enrichment to be able to look at the uh, plate of food produced in the place that you grew up in and uh, 
know where the ingredients came from, what the meaning of those ingredients came from, why they were prepared in a certain way, why they're served with this other thing on the plate. Um, that kind of knowledge uh, actually makes the active uh, dining much more, I don't know, pungent or uh, fulfilling. I also am, am very much concerned that the various regions or parts of South Carolina receive their due recognition for their contributions. In the world at large, the low country cuisine looms over much. And we don't, I mean, the national press talks about Charleston cooking, low country Gullah Geechee cooking, but there were really important contributions from the Midlands and up, upstate, and uh, particularly in terms of corn. And uh, I think that those have to be part of this general story as well. And people within the state have to be made aware of the contributions of place that aren't from the 30 miles around from where you live, but from counties on the other end, you know? Right, right. Well, Louisiana has that same issue. Oh, I mean, totally, totally. Yes. Louisiana, I mean, the, Geography of Louisiana is somewhat varied. I mean, you could argue that there's not a hill in Louisiana, but it's definitely predominated by and overshadowed by the food of New Orleans and then maybe also Cajun food. And you get up into Shreveport, they're asking for fried oysters up there, you know. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that's really neat about Louisiana it has a great vegetable history. And one of the things that I think is general about the South is that, uh, you know, everyone's talking barbecue, barbecue, barbecue. But what's really special about the South is this extraordinary plentitude of great vegetables, whether it's field peas or sweet corn or guinea squash or collards, tomatoes. I mean, the, the, the gardens of the South uh, where the glory is. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I love all those dishes that will add, say, tomato and okra and corn and wild onions together and stew them down. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, that's interesting. One of the things I wonder, I mean, in South Carolina, we have a, a tradition of drying okra. It's an old African-American way of doing it. And is that something that happens in Louisiana too, where it's dried on the roofs of cabins and stuff like that? I mean, I, I think it was. I don't think that it's something that since we have freezers now, I don't really think that dried okra has the same place that it used to have. I mean, I do right. think it's still a practice and sometimes people string it up, and but it's not something that has the, the same kind of ubiquity that there used to be. So I want to thank both of you. This has been a really great conversation. And um, it's a very terrific book. We could talk about this book. It reminded me so much of things like Melaton.org and things where people are trying to save things in, in Louisiana. And it's really wonderful to have a book that kind of marks, okay, here we are, the be kind of beginning of the 21st century, 
and we have this document that you've created so that a hundred years from now, somebody can write another book and use this as kind of a basis so we can see how things change. I, I love that, that possibility. So thanks very, very much. And I look forward to your next book. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Bad. <laughs> it was definitely bad. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's really kind of scary because, um, you know, th that was something that people just took for granted and people would have paper bags full of uh, satsumas that they had picked off their tree and they'd bring them to work so everybody would have one. And then the next day they'd bring another bag, you know, that used to be things that I remember. And right now it's just not working like that. Yeah, um, yeah I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. Hey, good talking with you. Nice to talk to you. Bye-bye. All right. Take care, guys. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, Join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.